Thank you, Dave. Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors uh, here. We are continuing in 1 John as we just read. And so as you make your way in your Bibles or on your device to chapter 4, I want to tell you a brief uh, story. When I, was, uh, when I was in my first semester of seminary, I needed a, uh, a job, and I had a relative who worked in a uh, high-end men's uh, clothing company, and, uh, and so she got me an interview for this company because they were opening kind of a, uh, a new store uh, that was about three miles from my school, so it seemed like a, a perfect opportunity for me. And so she got me an interview, I, I went to the interview, um, but honestly, I uh, lost the job or any chance for the job uh, even before the interview began because I walked in wearing khakis from the Gap or something. And uh, this is a very, very nice uh, high-end clothing company. I knew uh, that I lost. At that point, I didn't know that I had no chance, but uh, I knew I had no chance when they asked me the very first question. And that very first question is, who's your favorite designer? And I thought... I have no clue. I mean, I could name designers, Calvin Klein, because they mentioned him on Back to the Future. There's a number of different designers that I've heard of in my life, but I know no matter what I say, they're, they're then going to follow that up with, why? Why do you like that person? I realize I have no chance. I don't remember what I said, but I do remember that I was so naive as to not even be embarrassed by what I said. Needless to say, I didn't get the job, but I did get the, uh, a job at Starbucks. So a lot of you know that uh, I was a barista at Starbucks for my first uh, couple of semesters uh, in seminary. And, uh, and so I've told the story before about how they just kind of conveniently forgot to send me to training. And so my first day on the job, they are just yelling out these strange string of words at me. And, uh, and I mentioned before that the strangest was a triple venti, half-calf, uh, non-fat, sugar-free vanilla, 152-degree latte, all right, with seven Splendas, all right? Now, uh, uh, eventually, after a bit of time, because of psychos like uh, this person who ordered that, uh, eventually I learned all of the drinks, and I was actually a fairly good uh, barista. And so I was good at baristaing or baristaing or coffee-making beverages. And, uh, and so uh, I had some uh, co-workers who said, Jeff, you know what you should do? You should apply to become a coffee master. What is a coffee master? Well, it's kind of like a Jedi master, except without the force or lightsabers or anything like that. Uh, but uh, if you've ever been into a Starbucks and you've seen someone wearing a black apron rather than a green apron, that person wearing the black apron has gone through the process and they are a coffee master. It's kind of uh, to coffee what a sommelier is to wine but not really. In theory, a coffee master should be able, you could blindfold them and you could hand them various cups of coffee and they would taste it and they'd be able to tell you this, it comes from this particular region and, uh, and maybe even this particular year and here's the acidity and here's the type of soil and here's the name of the guy who packaged it or whatever it is. And, uh, and so it sounds really, really uh, cool or, or at least pretentious, um, but, uh, but I... Uh, have a problem. And that problem is I cannot taste any of the subtle differences in coffee. And, uh, and so I confess this to you. If my wife did not appreciate uh, finer coffee, I would drink Folgers every morning because it's the best part of waking up. 
I'm going to add so much cream and so much sugar in there that it doesn't really matter to me if it's the nicest coffee in the world or just instant coffee or something like that. So I don't have a very discerning palate when it comes to uh, coffee, but some people do. Some people love to taste the various types of coffee and, and they can pick out hints of oak or ash or tobacco or something. Uh, I'm doing really good if I can tell the difference between like uh, coffee and wine. I can tell the difference, and so I feel like that's all that's necessary. Now, if you're going to become a sommelier, you need to know different types of wine. If you're going to become a coffee master, you need to be able to discern different types of coffee. If you're going to work in the high-end fashion industry, you need to be able to discern different uh, styles and, and designers and those kind of things. But for you and I, just normal people, if you don't happen to work in those particular fields, it really doesn't make a difference. At the end of the day, it really doesn't make a difference whether or not you can uh, distinguish Armani from Old Navy, whether or not you can uh, distinguish uh, some finer coffee brand like Hacienda from something that you buy at, at, uh, at Kroger's like Maxwell House, whether you can uh, distinguish Yellowtail from Silver Oak. It doesn't really make a difference for us, but there are certain things in Scripture that God says it does make a difference if you can differentiate. There are certain palates, there are certain tastes that God commands that his people have. There are certain things that God says you must be able to discern this. You must be able to discern truth from error, from falsehood. Theological light from theological darkness. The voice of God from your own voice. The Holy Spirit from any other spirit. And that's what our passage is about this morning. So let's pray and then we'll dive in uh, together. I want to ask you to first just pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, an attentive heart and mind this morning, eyes to see and ears to hear, remove from you any distraction. And then will you pray that for those uh, around you? Maybe pray that for us corporately, that God would give us collectively eyes to see and ears to hear. And then lastly, would you pray for me for boldness and faithfulness to God's word that I might proclaim it rightly and that he might be glorified. So Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to uh, understand it, to appreciate it, to embrace it, to treasure it, uh, and to apply it uh, to our lives. And we confess that that is only possible by your spirit, by your grace. And so we ask for your help because you're a good father who gives good gifts. And so we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Again, we're in 1 John chapter four. We're just working through the book of 1 John. We, uh, we happen to find ourselves at the beginning of chapter four today. And we'll be in verses one through three, starting in verse one. 1 John 4, one says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we read this as a chapter division, and so we kind of lose the context. And so I want to go back, because last week's text ended by referencing the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 John 3, 24, the, the latter half there. It says, and by this we know that he, uh, that's God, abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 
unfortunately, so he mentions there uh, the Holy Spirit, but unfortunately not every spirit is the Holy Spirit. Not every spirit is from God. Not every spirit is true and trustworthy. This is obvious if you've been following along in the context of John's first uh, epistle where we've already uh, discussed the the fact that many false prophets, many false teachers uh, have come in to corrupt the church and have eventually gone out of the church. They have left the people of God. Why? Because of false teaching. Teaching that somehow denied uh, Christ, somehow distorted the biblical teaching on the necessity of love for our brother, uh, the necessity of, of us to be growing in righteousness and holiness and sanctification and morality. So John writes, don't believe every spirit. Instead, he says we are to test the spirits. Why? Because the reality that he's already discussed throughout the book, which is that false prophets, false teachers have come into the world, not just a few, not just some, notice what it says, many false prophets have gone out into the world, and so he says that we are to test them. Now, I love tests. My, uh, my, my mom is a special ed teacher. Uh, she's done it for 40-something years, and part of her job when I was a kid was to administer IQ tests. And, uh, and so, uh, if you are wondering, was I a strange kid? The answer is yes, because my mom would always uh, try out all of these IQ tests on my siblings and, uh, and me. And, uh, and so, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the average seven-year-old just loves having a friend who always takes IQ tests and always talks about it. I was a pretty pretentious uh, kid. But whether you were like me or not, everyone in this room has taken a number of tests, all right? Uh, even if you weren't like me, you've taken uh, quizzes and midterms and uh, finals. You've taken the PSAT or the SAT or the ACT. You've taken a driving test. When you got to be older, maybe you took a, a shooting test and a written test to get your license to carry. Uh, you took a genetic test from some company in order to uh, determine your ancestry. Uh, you take personality tests like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs. You take online tests because you're bored at work and so you want to find out are you more of a Michael or a Jim or a Dwight or Toby or whatever it, uh, it might be? We take tests all the time. Well, in addition to all of these sort of tests, the Bible is going to command us to take tests. It's going to command us and commend us to the work of examination. The Bible says that we are to test ourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Or Galatians 6, 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In addition to that, it says that we are to test church officers like deacons and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless, 1 Timothy 3, 10. And it also says that we're to test truth, we're to test prophetic words, such as we see in this passage of 1 John and also in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, which says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. So 1 Thessalonians talks uh, about testing prophecy. And then 1 John connects false prophets to evil spirits, as we'll see. So what's the connection there? What's the connect, uh, connection between false prophets and these evil spirits? I think another uh, passage that we see in Pauline literature will help. So look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. We'll come back to this later in the sermon, but I want to introduce it now. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, 
some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice the phrase there, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Behind every false teacher is false teaching. And behind every false teaching is the work of the enemy. Now, he doesn't mean there sort of like the Scooby-Doo sense uh, where you pull off the mask from the heretic uh, and you have a demon there who says, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids. That's not what he's talking about there. He's not saying that every heretic is like personally possessed by a particular demon. That's not his point uh, at all. But rather, he says that every heretic, every false teacher, every false teaching is in essence doing the devil's work in regards to spreading false teaching. If the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, then any falsehood is of the enemy. That's his point there. So, uh, so how do we administer the test? Well, let's keep going in verses uh, 2 through the beginning of, uh, of verse 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, before we get to uh, how we actually administer the test and what questions are on the test or whatever it might be, I want to mention what I thought this meant as a kid. I didn't read the Bible as a kid. I wasn't saved until I was 23, uh, but uh, I had heard this passage before uh, used in, uh, in church, and here's what I was told that it meant. I was told that if I ever come across uh, an angel, that I was to ask it this one particular question, like a code because demons, after all, can disguise themselves as angels of light. But apparently, demons can't lie when it comes to this one particular question. That is, has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? It's kind of like asking an undercover police officer, are you a cop? We all know they can't lie, right? They just have to say it, and then they have to go back and put on another disguise or whatever it might be. Well, the problem with this application is threefold. The problem with thinking that this passage is just saying, if you meet a demon or an angel, you ask them this one question, they can't lie. Whatever they say, you, uh, you listen to them. There are a few problems with this. Number one, if I or if you ever encountered an actual angel or demon, I would probably either fall down in absolute terror or just think it was a normal human. In general, when you uh, see someone encounter a, an angel uh, in Scripture, those are the two responses. They either fall down in such overwhelming fear or they are completely un unaware. And so those would, those would probably be my responses. I wouldn't actually have the presence of mind to ask it any particular uh, question. A second reason this doesn't work is because the whole thing is predicated on the idea that demons can't lie. Do you understand how absurd, how silly that actually sounds when you actually think about it? All they do is lie. Satan is the father of lies. By the way, so can an undercover officer, or else the whole law enforcement thing would unravel pretty quickly, all right? There's no reason to think that a demon couldn't admit that Christ has come in the flesh. They know that. Demons know that Christ has come in the flesh. They say that throughout the Gospels. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to torture us or torment us before the time? They know that Christ has come in the flesh. They don't like it. They don't love it. They don't rest in it, but they absolutely know it. So there's no reason to assume that a demon couldn't pass this test in regards to just simply saying these 
words, but more importantly, that isn't the context. The context of this passage is not so much what do you do when you encounter an actual demon, but rather how do you discern false teaching from truth? True prophets or true teachers from false prophets, false teachers. So John gives us this test, and what is that test? He says whether or not one agrees that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So does that mean that anyone who thinks that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God? What seems like that's what he's saying, but not so fast. Heretics, early church heretics, like Arius, who believed that, uh, that the Son of God was a, a created being rather than the creator, he would say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He just means something different by the words Jesus Christ. Or Pelagius, the, the early church heretic who believed that mankind wasn't naturally, essentially uh, wicked, but instead kind of was morally neutral and influenced toward righteousness or sin. He would have said that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So that can't be the only question on uh, our uh, little theological test. Besides, the rest of the book suggests that there should be other questions, other ways that we are to discern, other ways that we are to differentiate, other ways that we are to test the Spirit. Remember that the entire book of 1 John, in a sense, provides us a litmus test. Uh, it, it, it says that the, there is one part theological and one part moral and one part relational. The one who loves God, the one who has been born of God, the one who is loved by God will believe certain fundamental things. That's the theological part of it. Uh, will also be pursuing sanctification and holiness. That's the moral part of it. And will also be pursuing love for others. That's the relational part of it. So in addition to any theological test that we might apply to discern truth from falsehood, there is also a moral test and a relational test. So why is it that John doesn't give us this full, exhaustive, comprehensive test, but instead gives one particular theological question regarding Christ coming in the flesh? Why is it that he only gives one question if this isn't exhaustive? The answer is because of his unique particular context in the first century. This was the particular truth that the particular first century false teachers he has been talking about would have denied. So the particular historical application of this text has to do with whether or not one believes certain truths about the Son of God. Do you believe that he is the Messiah? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Do you believe that he is fully God and fully human? Do you believe that he is the word made flesh? Do you believe that he died for our sins? Do you believe that he rose again and is coming again? And that text is, or that test is certainly applicable uh, today. For instance, it provides for us a clear line of demarcation between Orthodox Christian theology on one hand and every other world religion and all of the cults on the other hand. What distinguishes Christianity from everything else, from modern Judaism, from Hinduism, from Islam, from Mormonism, from Jehovah's Witnesses, and so forth? The primary distinction, the primary distinction is Trinitarian and Christological. Do you believe? Do you confess? Do you embrace? Do you rest in the reality that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? Do you believe and confess that the eternal Son of God became flesh, that the second person of the Trinity took on humanity such that he is now fully and truly man and also fully and truly human? If you do not fully and truly believe that, uh, if you don't confess that, then you're not a Christian. 
in any biblical or historical sense, no matter what you may call yourself. So that's the historical context of this passage. That's a contemporary application. But again, that isn't intended to be exhaustive. If John were writing this uh, passage to the 21st century American church, I think he would actually tell us there's a whole host of other questions that we should uh, put on our test. Imagine, if you will, that you wanted to go to the Super Bowl. And so you came and you asked me, how do, I, how do I go about that? How do I go to the Super Bowl? And so I tell you, well, you go online and you buy some tickets. And she just said, great, thank you so much for telling me how I get to the Super Bowl. And then I see you the morning of February 2nd here at the church. And I say, oh man, I'm sorry. I guess you didn't get tickets to, uh, to the game. And you say, no, I did. So I say, so you aren't going? And you say, no, I, I am. And then I ask, so then why aren't you in Miami? And you give me this blank, confused look, and you say, you didn't say anything about going to Miami. You said all I have to do is just go online and buy tickets. What's just happened in this moment? Well, you've just con- uh, confused a necessary condition for a sufficient condition. Do you need tickets to go to the Super Bowl? Yes, right? That's, that's not tricky, right? <laughs> It's not a trick question or something. I'm gonna, it's like gotcha sort of moment. Yes, you absolutely need tickets to go to the game. Is that all you need? No, you need to get up, get dressed, get on a plane or drive to Miami. You need to leave your hotel room. You need to walk up to the gate. You need to hand them tickets and so forth. There's a number of things that you have to do. Likewise, with this test that John provides here in this particular passage. Do you have to confess and believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Absolutely. But is that it? No. Confessing this particular truth is a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition if your goal is to distinguish between truth and falsehood, error and, uh, and the truth. There are lots of other contemporary applications of this text. Lots of other questions that would be helpful in regards to testing the spirits in our particular context, to discern good from false teaching. There are applications as it relates to anthropology, that is the doctrine of man. How do you understand mankind's essential nature? There are applications as it relates to soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. How is it that we are saved? There are applications even as it relates to eschatology uh, in regards to the final things or the end times. You have to believe that Jesus is coming back, that he rose from the dead, that there's going to be a resurrection and judgment and, uh, and so forth. There are a number of things that would be helpful for us. There are certain fundamental things that you must believe, certain things that if someone didn't believe would certainly disqualify them as a preacher or as a teacher, maybe even certain things that if you didn't believe would disqualify you even if you claim to be a Christian. You see, John is writing in a context where the New Testament wasn't yet complete. He's writing a part of the canon of Scripture, but the canon of Scripture is not yet complete in his context. They had the Old Testament, but most of the people to whom he is writing would have maybe only read one or two Gospels, probably John's Gospel. They would have read maybe one or two epistles, maybe one or two of the letters that Paul had written and, uh, and, and maybe something else. But they didn't have the entirety of Scripture, so the, uh, the particular test that John gives is short and succinct, and it cuts right to the, to the heart of his historical context to distinguish truth from error. But here's the difference. 
We're not in the first century. We're not preceding the time, uh, we're not in the period before the canon is complete. We have a much more comprehensive body of knowledge than John's readers do because we have the entire canon. We have the entire scripture. We have the entire Bible. And because we have the full counsel of God, our test could and should be a bit more broad. For instance, I think in regards to testing the spirits, you should ask yourself this particular question, does any teaching attempt to cut something out of Scripture? Does any uh, teacher uh, attempt to uh, maybe ignore what the Bible says on a topic, as if God didn't actually say that particular thing? This tendency is pervasive not only in our larger culture, but even in evangelical culture, even among those who would claim to be uh, Christians, even those who would claim to be conservative Christians. For instance, There's ever-expanding allowances for divorce and remarriage. We talked about that a little bit in theological equipping. There's more and more permissive views uh, in regards to human sexuality, in particular homosexuality. There's ever-increasing embarrassment, even in evangelical churches, uh, over what God has written regarding gender roles, differences between men and women in the home and in the church. I'm not saying that everyone who caves on these issues isn't a Christian, But I'm saying this is the spirit of the age that we are to be aware of. And I think John would tell us to test against the fullness of God's word. But there's another danger as well. Some try to remove or or, or to excise or to cut certain truths from Scripture. But others of us attempt to add to Scripture. I have a buddy who was on a mission trip. And uh, one time as a joke, he said, now this isn't in Scripture, but it should be. All right. I think a lot of us live our lives as if that's not actually a joke at, uh, at all. I, I would guess, honestly, that every single person in this room has at least one area in our lives where we wish God would have said more than he did on a particular topic. And so what we do in our minds, maybe not physically, but what we do metaphorically is we take a little pen and we go to our Bible and we open it up and we add a little marginal note there as if that is authoritative. If you want to know where you do that, just ask yourself this question. What things make you uncomfortable even though the Bible in its entirety doesn't actually condemn that thing? What things make you uncomfortable? What things do you not like? What things do you not approve of even though you actually can't find a text that actually uh, teaches that when you align it with the full counsel of God? Maybe for you, it's things that were prohibited in the Mosaic Covenant, like tattoos or shellfish or working on Saturday or Sunday. Maybe it's uh, certain views in regards to what kind of music that Christians could listen to or whether women can wear pants or men can wear jeans or whether you should watch movies or play cards. Or the biggest in American churches over the past 150 years, is it appropriate for Christians to drink alcohol? In each of these cases, dozens of others, again, it's almost uh, endless, limitless, the, the number of regulations that we can create because we're uncomfortable with something. But in, the, in each of these cases and dozens of others, we imagine that God has simply forgotten to forbid something. And so we do it for him, and then we pretend like God is actually pleased when we've actually implied that God's word is deficient. It's inadequate. It's insufficient. God is not pleased by that. In fact, he is inherently displeased when we take his word and we say, that's not good enough. Let me add a little marginal note. Let me add some of my own words because God's words aren't 
enough. Now, obviously, the historical context of this particular passage has very little to do with the particular kinds of questions that I'm asking, but here's why I bring it up. Because they each, each of these sorts of questions, do the same thing as the error that John is combating. How so? Because they deny the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. A while ago, I mentioned 1 Timothy 4. I want to go back to that for a second and show you this point. 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So notice the overlap between this particular passage and 1 John. John has told us to test the spirits, to test false prophets, and then Paul writes about the teachings of demons. And notice what this teaching consists of. Asceticism, legalism, things like forbidding marriage, things like prohibiting certain foods, or by parenthetical comment, certain drinks as well. Why would false teachers, why would demons care what you do or don't eat, what you do or don't drink, whether you marry or not? Because the point is to get you so concerned about what you do or don't eat or do or don't drink or do or don't do in regards to marriage. The point is to get you so concerned about those things that your focus is on those things and your focus and your intention is taken off of Christ. You see, sin doesn't care if you're a drunk or if alcohol has never once touched your lips, as long as your hope and your happiness is on whether or not you've drunk or not. That's probably not the correct use of drunk, all right? Sin doesn't care if you're a glutton, if you overeat. Sin doesn't care if you fast five days a week. Sin just cares that you find your hope in whether or not you eat or you don't eat. As long as your hope, as long as your happiness is in something other than the cross of Christ, sin is appeased. Sin is content. That's the teaching of demons. This kind of reminds me of being in college. Uh, Though I was a pretentious kid who liked taking tests, I did not like to study. Uh, In fact, I didn't love to study until just after uh, college. I got saved, and that was just an area of my life that the Lord radically uh, transformed. But before that, I loved to do anything except for study. Uh, My uh, uh, room, my apartment was never cleaner than when? Finals week, right? I never cooked such elaborate meals than finals week. Why? Because I would always rather do something than study. Did it matter to me whether I was cleaning or cooking or sleeping or watching a movie or partying or whatever it might be? No, the point was I just wasn't studying. That's like sin. It doesn't matter if you drink too much or if you find your hope and identity in the fact that you don't drink at all. As long as your focus is not on Christ, sin is appeased, and that's the teaching of demons. Sin doesn't care what you're doing as long as you aren't resting in Christ. So as we test the spirits, according to this passage, as we test ourselves, as we test teachers or preachers, as we, uh, as we do these things, we, we do more than just ask this one particular question, does this person confess that Christ has come in the flesh? Instead, we examine how the entirety of their scripture aligns with the entirety 
of the counsel of God. You see, I'm less concerned uh, that any of you will actually renounce Christ and join a cult. Some of you could, and I'm concerned if that's the case. I'm less concerned about that. I'm less concerned that any of you are going to leave the church and start attending a mosque. What am I concerned about? I'm concerned about the innate response of the human heart to add to or to take away from the Word of God. I'm less concerned about you joining another religion or joining a cult. I am much more concerned that you would drift in the area of the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. So, this particular testing of the spirits means something in John's context, and that's helpful in that context, but we might broaden that a bit in light of our changed historical context by not merely asking this one question, but rather by asking uh, whether or not something submits to the entirety of the Word of God. Let's keep going, looking at the latter half of 1 John 4, 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. We've already talked quite a bit about the the Antichrist in chapter 2. We also did a theological equipping class last semester on the topic. Uh, So if you want more kind of in-depth thoughts on that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that audio. Bottom line, we tend to think of the Antichrist as some sort of uh, future figure. Uh, If you've read uh, Left Behind, you think of Nikolai Carpathia, some future uh, global leader from uh, Romania that will enchant the whole world. No offense if you're from Romania. But that image of this sort of future world leader uh, uh, is what most of us think when we think of the word uh, antichrist. Unfortunately, that isn't the most helpful image for a few reasons. By, by way of summary, let me give you a few of the things that we've already talked about as we preach through chapter two and then talked about this in theological uh, equipping. First, the term antichrist is only used in 1 John and in 2 John. That's it, in the entire Bible. It's not used once in Paul's letters. It's not used once in the Gospels. It's not used once in Revelation. In the entire Bible, the term antichrist, that word actually only occurs five times. Four of them are in this book, 1 John, and then once in 2 John, which we'll see after we do uh, 1 John. So that's the first thing to know. We make a huge deal out of the Antichrist, and yet it only appears five times in all of them in John's epistles. Second, the primary meaning of the term Antichrist, as it appears in John's epistles, which is the only place it appears, uh, is not some future global figure, but rather any false teacher who distorts certain fundamental aspects of the gospel such as the Trinity or the, the, the person or mission of Christ. In other words, John is much less concerned with one particular future world leader. Rather, John is concerned with many contemporary false prophets, many contemporary false teachers. He's concerned with heretics. That's the meaning of Antichrist in John's epistles. The third thing you need to know is there's probably some overlap. We talked about this before. There's probably some overlap between John's usage of Antichrist, Paul's references to the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation's references to uh, the beast. If so, there seems to be in this this concept past, present, and future uh, sort of uh, perspectives uh, here, past, present, and future dimensions to this uh, concept. Nero was a type of Antichrist in the first century. Uh, He's probably the historical referent of the beast language in Revelation. 
False teachers are antichrists throughout the history of the church. There are always uh, have been antichrists. There always will be antichrists in the sense of uh, heresies and false teachings and so forth throughout the history uh, of the church. And there may indeed even be some future uh, global antichristic uh, figure who opposes Christ and oppresses God's people. But again, that isn't the way that John uses the term here. Here the idea is that anyone who opposes the doctrine of Christ is an antichrist. So the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, as the previous verse mentioned, is informed and influenced by the spirit of Antichrist. So basically what John is doing here in this passage, he's setting up this contrast, as he does throughout uh, the book, between light and darkness, between life and death, between truth and falsehood. Uh, And so now he says that all spirits basically can be categorized into only two categories. It's this dualism. He says that in one category, you have the Holy Spirit, and then you have everything else. In other words, in uh, Johannine theology, in the the theology of of John's epistles, basically you're either for Christ or against Him. You are influenced by the spirit of truth, or you're influenced by the spirit of the world, by the spirit of the age, by the spirit of the Antichrist, by the spirit of demons, by your own spirit, by whatever it might be. Those are the only two categories that John gives us. And that's First John, uh, John 1, uh, 4, 1 through 3. So what do we, what do, we do with this uh, today? I gave you already a couple of, uh, of contemporary applications, but I want to end with these two implications or applications of the text. First, as we, uh, as we mentioned, the contemporary application of this passage is not just that we uphold this one particular test as if it's comprehensive, as if it's uh, exhaustive, um, We don't just simply uh, uphold this one particular test in regards to what one believes about the Word of God incarnate, but also what does one believe about the Word of God inscripturated? What does one believe about the whole counsel of God? We'll see that exposited a bit more next week. Look at verse uh, 6, 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, a consequence of actually knowing God and being known by God is listening to the apostolic word, is recognizing, is hearing, is listening to the apostolic word. Those who deny scripture deny the God who inspired that scripture. You're going to see something similar in John's gospel. John 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. God. We seem to have this cultural disconnect between loving God and loving His Word as if those two things can be separated, as if those two things are divisible. They're not. You cannot love God and hate His Word or be ignorant of His Word or, or be apathetic toward His Word. If you love God, those who love God love His Word. We see something similar in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or spiritual, what should he do? He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, John tells us to test the spirits, which means that we should test any thought, any feeling, any emotion, any teaching, whether it's uh, that we ourselves think or feel, or whether it's something that we read or hear from someone else. And the way that we test others and ourselves in this regard is by asking, how does that thought How does that teaching, how does that feeling, how does that emotion align with the entirety of the Word of God? If you ever think, if you ever feel something that contradicts Scripture, 
It may be indeed a spirit that you are experiencing, a spirit that you're hearing, a spirit that you're feeling, but it's not the spirit of God. It's not the Holy Spirit, which means that as an application of this passage, as an application of this text this morning, you have to read, you have to study, you have to meditate on Scripture. The reason we preach expositionally is so that we might collectively learn to swim in the depths of Scripture. The reason we do things like theological equipping class is so that we might learn how to systematize it and interpret it correctly. The reason that we encourage you to be a part of the community group is so that you might regularly be talking about Scripture with others. But that's just a few hours a week. There's a responsibility that you have to be immersing yourself in the Word of God regularly. Your ability to obey this text is directly related to your capacity to understand, to discern, and interpret Scripture. Or let me say it negatively, you cannot be faithful to this particular command. You cannot be faithful to 1 John chapter 4 if you don't know and understand Scripture. So read it, memorize it, study it. That's the first implication. That's the first application. If you don't know what that means, talk to your group leader. Talk to a staff member or an elder. We would love to help you with that. But you have to read, you have to study, you have to love the Word of God. The second application of the passage is a bit more subtle, but that is to worship. I actually see this uh, implicit command here in, uh, in the passage or, 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 or uh, implicit implication, which is redundant, and that is to worship. This text has just said, notice what the text has said, it's just said that any ability that you have to confess that Jesus is the Christ is a work of the Spirit. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God. It's a gift. It's grace. You weren't observant enough. You weren't smart enough. You weren't good enough. You weren't uh, gracious enough. Uh, you weren't anything enough in order to realize and embrace any of this truth on your own. If you confess that Jesus is the Christ, if you confess that the Son of God has united himself to humanity, that he has lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross for our sins, that he rose again, that he's coming again, that is nothing in which you can boast. That is entirely, 100%, a gift of God's grace. Not just if you say those words, anyone can confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but if you actually embrace it, if you actually believe it, if you actually rest in it, if you trust it, if you treasure it, that is God's grace to you. So the proper response is to worship in humility and gratitude for God's grace. So that's the application of our text this morning, that we might test others and test ourselves, anything that we hear, anything that we think, anything that we feel, anything that we read, by submitting that thought or feeling or whatever it might be to the full counsel of God. And that should we find that we pass the test, that the thinking, that the feeling that we have actually passes this test and aligns with Scripture, that we should glorify the Spirit who has enabled us to see and believe His truth. That response of worship is how we're going to end today, but first let's pray, and then we'll prepare ourselves for communion. Father, I thank you for uh, your word this morning. I pray that you would help us to be a people who would so love you that we would love your word and that we wouldn't divide those as if those are somehow separable, somehow divisible, but that we would be those who cry out, oh, how I love your word. It is my meditation all the day long. It is better to me than gold, even fine gold and sweeter than honey. 
I pray that we would be a people who would be obedient to this text, would test the spirits, would repent where we have false thoughts and false feelings, confess that those are not of you, those are demonic, those are unhelpful, those are fleshly. So maybe we be those who destroy strongholds and take captive every thought to obedience to the glory and renown of your Son. We pray these things for His name and sake. Amen.